Father, again, we come to you this morning asking these few minutes that you would still our hearts, cause us to focus upon your greatness and your beauty, encourage us and excite us to the beauty of the gospel and to your power. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So last week we began to study Joseph, this one passage where his brothers come to him. So I'd like to review just for a minute or two on what we discussed last week. As we looked at Joseph and all the things that his brother had done to him and the evil they had brought about him, and they finally come to him to ask for forgiveness, we learned in that process that there really is no such thing as chance that causes things. Everything is done by God's hand and under his control. We also saw that because of this knowledge, we called it, if you remember, we called it 50-20 vision which comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 50, verse 20. So 50-20 vision is understanding and seeing the world through uh, providence. And when Joseph had this 50-20 vision, when he saw what was happening, he told them simply, you meant it for evil, but he understood that God meant it for good. And so because of that, Joseph had two things we saw in the text last week, which was he had contentment. Joseph never looked to go back to Israel. He stayed focused upon what he knew as his place. He didn't even try to send a messenger back to tell his dad that he was still alive. He just continued to exist in what God's will was for him. And second, we also noticed very clearly that forgiveness came very easy. For Joseph understood that he was simply playing a role and that therefore, why was he to, why would he withhold forgiveness? Because it was simply God at work. But this morning, we're going to have to take a little deeper look, I think, because we didn't deal with one of the very difficult parts of this passage. Look with me again in verse 20. It says and starts off, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. This raises several very serious questions I think we should grapple with this morning, where we have these competing interests. Theologians call this the doctrine of concurrence. I found a very simple, good definition of concurrence in that very famous publication, highly esteemed, called Table Talk. And the definition of concurrence in Table Talk is this. Concurrence says that two or more parties can act in the same event and produce a given outcome without all parties having the same intent. Concurrence says that two or more parties can act in the same event and produce a given outcome without all parties having the same intent, which is exactly what we see here with Joseph. Joseph is saying, you meant it for evil, that's one intention, but God meant it for good. This principle of concurrence we see throughout Scripture. This is one of the most famous examples, but I'll give you another one. Job. We're very familiar with the story of Job. Those Chaldeans that came at the very beginning and stole his cattle and killed his servants, they had a very specific intent, and that was nothing but evil. But yet God had a different intent. He was showing his servant faithful. And, of course, the most famous example of concurrence we could actually ever think of is our Lord's crucifixion, where Pilate and the soldiers and the Pharisees and scribes They were clearly having evil intent, but yet from the foundations of the world, that was declared that Jesus would die for our sins. 
God meant that for good. So we see the concept of concurrence throughout Scripture, and we're used to seeing it. Now we have a label for it. But that is the concept of there are more than one competing intention going on at the exact same time. But I think what we have to do is begin to think about the implications of that and some of the criticisms that are levied against us on our doctrine of providence. First, when we think of that, but you meant it for evil, is does that mean that God is the author of evil? For if everything is in God's hand and He is controlling everything that happens, and Joseph's brother threw them in the, threw him in the pit and sold him into slavery and false accusations given against him by Potiphar's wife. Does that mean God was author of evil in that particular question, in that particular situation? Well, I'll answer real quickly. The answer is no. Um, we know that and we've been confessing that for years, but why not? Well, first of all, scripture very clearly tells us, James 1, Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. James is clearly saying the desires of sin come from us. We're responsible for that. Think of Acts chapter 2, one uh, Peter is preaching immediately after the resurrection. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, God meant it for good, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But you crucified him, and you were lawless. So again, we see that competing thing where actually the deeds that happened came from lawless men. We are responsible for our own actions. Jonathan Edwards put it this way. I think it's a very clear way to understand it. God is a permitter of sin, but that does not make him a sinner. God will permit it. God will allow sin to happen. But that doesn't make him a sinner. Edwards used an illustration of the sun as an example of this. For we know the sun is the cause of light. It warms us. It has a function. We see because of the light. But yet when it sets, we don't blame the darkness on the sun. The sun did its job and it set. It's simply the withdrawal of light causes the darkness. But we don't sit there and go, oh man, the sun is responsible for the darkness. That's how Edwards phrased it. But in either case, we are not, excuse me, we are responsible for our own actions. God is not the author of evil. But I sense there's probably one more question we should ask about this phrase, as for you, you meant it for evil, and it's this. If God is controlling everything in his own hand, and he is moving and working so that all things, the word is all is, is inclusive of everything, is under his control, does that make us robots? Are we responsible then? How could we be responsible if God is moving? What this really comes down to is a question of the will, or what is commonly heard in society today, free will. Now, this is a very difficult subject, 
and we simply can't uh, plumb its depths in five or ten minutes here this morning. But I think it's in the text, and so I think we have to deal with it this morning on this concept of free will. And how does that work out in the doctrine of concurrence when when one means it for evil and God means it for good? Okay, so let's define will. What is the will? Jonathan Edwards, again, defines the will very simply. The will is the mind choosing. The will is simply the mind choosing. But does that go far enough? Because I think it's fair to ask, how does the mind choose? The mind chooses because of our desires and our heart. For when the mind makes a decision between red or blue, A or B, the mind is making that decision on reason. But what informs the mind to make that decision? And it's our heart and our desires. Proverbs 4, 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. Matthew fifteen eighteen. But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these things defile a person. It's the heart and the desires that inform the will which causes the choice to be made. So I'm going to challenge you this morning with something that's going to sound a little off. I'm borrowing from Sproul, so I feel pretty good about it. And I think it's dead on. I will assert to you this morning that no one in this room has ever in their entire life not done what they didn't want to do. Or rephrase that a different way, has always done what they always wanted to do. Every time. Now you might say to me, no chance. I didn't want to go to Christmas dinner at the in-laws and I went. Right? I would say to you, think a little bit more on that. You did have a choice. But your desires, which inform your will to choose, will always choose what it likes best. It was better to go to that dinner you didn't want to do than to reap the consequences of not going to that dinner, what you didn't want to do. It would have been better to go and suffer than to stay at home and get written out of the will or whatever would have happened to you. It was better. When you woke up this morning, Steve, you chose a salmon shirt with some kind of a blue stripe from back here. I can't tell exactly. I don't know why you chose that. But there was some reason you chose it. You had an option to choose the white shirt. You didn't take it. Something about your desire informs your will and you choose. And if you think about that, that is true of every decision you make. That is, in essence, the origin of sin is that we choose our desires are for sin more than they are for God at that point in time. And we sin. It's our desires that inform the will. The great American philosopher Jack Benny has a great skit, and it sums it up very well. In the skit, and I, you can still get it on YouTube, it's pretty funny, he's being held up, uh, and, and the, uh, the robber says to him, your money or your life? And there's a dead pause. And there's more quiet, and finally the robber says, well, or something like that, and he says, I'm thinking it over. <laughs> right? Because he has an option. And even the most dire of circumstances that you can think of, there was an alternative. But the human desire chose based on what it wanted most at the time. Do you see that? So that brings us to a question, though. What happened at the fall? 
was the will affected at the fall? Romans 8, 7. Can the mind choose good? Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. John six sixty five. This is why I told you, this is Jesus speaking. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Now, no one is a rather clear word. No one can come to me. Romans 3.10, we know this one from the Romans road. There is none that are righteous, no, not one. But it keeps going, and usually we have a tendency to cut that off. No one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Our wills, we call this in the Reformed faith, under the T for tulip, total depravity. And what that says in common is simply this, that the fall corrupted every part of us. It doesn't mean that we don't do acts that appear good in society and civil. It simply means every part of us has been affected by the fall, including our will. So what does that mean? That means our desires are always for what pleases us, not what pleases God. A.W. Pink, in his book, The Sovereignty of God, had a very interesting illustration on will and this concept of free will. For if you were to ask me, do I believe in free will, I would have to have that defined. If the definition of free will is simply that a person is free to choose what they desire, I would answer, yes, I believe in free will. If you are to ask me, is a person free to choose anything, I would answer, no. And here's how A.W. Pink would illustrate that. If I have a, just to have this. If I have a book here, and if I let go of this book, that book is free to fall to the ground. Because there are laws in place, and it will follow those laws, and it will fall to the ground. But, if I let go, it is not free to go up. It can only go down. The only way it goes up is if I lift it up. That's A.W. Pink's illustration to understand what happens to the will and God's sovereignty. In essence, what we see is that we will always do what we desire, and for us to do something different requires God. Augustine says, For the mind to choose God, grace assisted. For the mind to choose badly, grace desisted. There's a great example, two of them, in Scripture we're going to look at next to really wrap up this concept of free will and how it works out in providence. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20. I'll set the stage. This is Abraham. And he's up to his old tricks. Abraham is traveling. And apparently his wife, Sarah, was rather attractive. Because every time Abraham gets in the country somewhere, he decides to lie about who, who his wife actually is to try to escape being killed, apparently. Even though, keep in mind, Abraham fully knows that God promised him he would be the one who brings this great people together. He still worries about his life every time he travels into a foreign country. So we're at a scene, Genesis chapter 20, where Abraham is traveling again and he's worked out his scheme to lie. 
about who his wife is. Verse 20, chapter 1. From there, and notice, we will get to in just a few verses, notice God's providence working. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of Nagab and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned to Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, I love this, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she's my sister? And she herself said, he's my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have not done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you did not return to her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. There is a classic example of how God is not the author of evil, how man is acting in their free will, yet God is determining all things. For the desires of Abimelech's heart would have been to approach Sarah, But God intervened and kept grace in Abimelech's life so that he would not commit that sin. Abimelech said, I'm innocent. And God said, you certainly are. You're welcome. (laughs) That's what God said. Now turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We'll see the exact same thing in reverse. Romans chapter 1. This is Paul's great exposition on there's none that are guilty, or excuse me, they're all that are guilty, there are none that can escape God's guilt. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, and they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Here we go. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, the dishonor of their bodies among themselves. God simply gave them up to what was in their heart already. That is how God, without being the author of sin, is working all things to his good, even though they meant it for evil of their own accord and of their own desires, God is still in control. He simply, as Augustine said, if they choose in good, grace assisted, and if they choose evil, grace desisted, and that he simply withholds his grace and lets the person be what they want. We see this in Pharaoh all the time, where God said we see in Pharaoh where God hardened his heart. God didn't actively take a pure heart from Pharaoh, take this sin and infuse it into Pharaoh's heart. It was already there. 
He simply let Pharaoh be what he wanted to be. It's in his heart. That is how, when we look at simply the doctrine of providence, that is how God is working through concurrence to allow that statement, you meant it for evil, but I meant it for good. You're not off the hook, and guilt is still your way. It's coming to you, but I still had a higher purpose. That's the doctrine of concurrence, and that's what Joseph understood. But now turn me back again to Genesis chapter 50. For we still have one more phrase to consider in this extraordinary statement by Joseph forgiving his brothers. Again, the vision of 50.20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. But now we get the why. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph gives the reason why. To bring it about that many should be kept alive. Some translations say many should be saved. Joseph knew there was something much bigger going on. That something, excuse me, that something that was much bigger was God's plan of redemption. For this is Genesis chapter 50. Turn the page. What do you get? Exodus chapter 1. The entire book of Genesis concludes in this dramatic scene where God is saying, I have worked everything out according to my plans to bring about my people. He literally created the famine in Israel to bring down the family so that Joseph could provide for them so that they could live in the land of, and I forgot the name off the top of my head, just hit me real quick, Goshen, excuse me, live in the land of Goshen and stay there for several hundred years and grow to become a great nation so that he could then bring them right back out. And over and over and over in Scripture we see God referring to, I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It was always part of his plan. And Joseph knew he had a role to play. But notice Joseph does not say, as for you, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good for me. Joseph does not say that. Joseph says, God meant it for good. He didn't necessarily say he meant it for me. That is really significant. Now, Joseph did benefit from it. If you think of all the things that happened to Joseph, he benefited greatly from this. But that doesn't mean that God's promises to us and God in providence is that always things turn out for our good. That's not what it means. It means it turns out for God's good and the good of God's people. Think of that man in John 9 where Jesus comes by. He's the blind man. And remember the Pharisees hit him up to Jesus and say, Hey, uh, who sinned here? Who sinned here? Was it him or was it his parents? Who sinned that he's blind? Remember that? And Jesus, Jesus said, Nobody sinned. He's blind so the works of God can be manifested in him. And he stoops down, gets some dirt, rubs it in his eyes, and heals him. That man, think about this though. We hear that story, we move on. That man was blind from birth to however old he was. He's referred to as a man. I don't know. Was he 15, 25, 35, 45? I don't know. His entire life, he was going without sight. I don't think that was good for him. He was going without sight so that at that point in time where Jesus providentially is walking by and gets hit with the question that God can answer it by healing him. 
up in point, up until that point, his entire life was crescendoing to that moment where the Savior incarnate could rub dirt on his eyes and make him see. So that Jesus could say, the blind see and the deaf talk and the dead raise. That was his whole point. I don't think that we would say, oh yeah, that was good for him. No, that was his role to play. And Joseph knew he had a role to play. And his role was so that God could mean it for good to bring, he could be there to care for God's people, to get them to Egypt, so that, so that the church could grow. At that point in time, it wasn't very many, 70, 80 people, including the whole family. We turn the page, we find out there's a king that arose that knew not Joseph, and now there's several million. But it was all part of God's plan of redemption. And how he worked it out was providence. I love the verse in Galatians 4. I think it would be a great Christmas sermon. Brett, if you're listening, it would be a great Christmas sermon. I love this phrase, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. I don't understand God's plans of redemption. His ways are higher than ours. Think of all the things that had to happen that God providentially was working from Egypt. Now we have, we come out of Egypt and now we're in the promised land and all the living that was going on there and Moses. Think of Noah. We're going for that far back. Think of how Solomon and David and the kings and the splitting and, and going down into captivity and coming back and we have these 400 years of silence. All that going on and God's like, no, not yet. Nope, not yet. Nope, not yet. He's still providentially controlling everything. He's waiting for Alexander the Great to come down and, and conquer the Middle East area. And then he's waiting for the Romans to take it from the Greeks and take it back. Pilots in place. Now's the time. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. I don't understand God's timing. And we don't understand God's providence. But everyone had a role to play in the fullness of time, God sending forth His Son. That's the providence of God. Everything is happening when God says it'll happen, when it happens, and not a moment too soon or too late. But there really is, even in God's providence, a higher purpose yet. And that is this, as we conclude, God's glory. God is always seeking his glory. Listen to Isaiah 43, 4. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Give men in return for you, peoples and exchanges for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. For I formed and made. Isaiah 48, verse 11. For my own sake, and for my own sake I do it, my glory, and I will not give it to another. I think that might rub us a little wrong if we don't think about it, and we just kind of breeze over really quick, that God is always about His glory. Because to be honest, we don't like people like that. The idea that somebody is an egomaniac, they're always looking for their own praise. They're seeking the praise of men. It kind of rubs us wrong a little bit. But we have to shed that because we're not God. God is the only perfect creature. He is God. He is the creator of the universe. And He will be glorified. 
For him to glorify anything else but himself would be a violation of his character. He has to glorify himself. For anything less would be an abomination. So God, in everything that is being done, seeks to glorify himself. And this story of Joseph is just part of that process. What was the good that Joseph was referring to? He was referring to God's church. The coming of the Christians. For Father Abraham is our father too, is he not? But he was referring to even something higher. And that something higher was God's own glory. For God's providence, if you want to really think about it in its most simple of terms, is the stake in the ground for us to know that God will keep every last one of his promises. Always. For without it, how can we trust him with our salvation? If he's not in control of all things, if there's one molecule that he can't control, how do we know that's not the molecule that won't affect whatever happens that somehow you don't, you're not in church at the time the word's preached and you don't ask, you don't, you don't, uh, pray for forgiveness? Every jot and tittle has to be controlled by God. Otherwise, he's not trustworthy. But he is. And because of that, everything that's done brings glory to him. That is the real story of Joseph. Where Joseph, as he looks at his brothers and offers forgiveness, knows, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good so that he could redeem his people so he could bring glory to himself. I leave you once again with the conclusion of the catechism on question number 28. What does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? We can be patient in adversity. We can be thankful in prosperity. And with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our own faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. Because God is trustworthy, we can trust him because he is in control of all things, even the things that we don't even understand or know why. That's the providence of God. Let's pray. Father, you are indeed mighty. You are indeed strong. You are everlasting to everlasting. There is nothing outside of your control, for you are God. Because of that, this morning, we give you praise. And we give you honor and we give you thanks. Because you will bring us home because you promised to do so. And we ask this and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.